From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Political commentator and investigative journalist, you're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. We're in hour number two of this live broadcast. Thank you for joining us, and big thank you to our listeners, our viewers at TNT Today's News Talk. Hello to everybody in the TNT chat community. Great to see you guys in there. If you want to get involved in our chat room, which is a great place to be during the live broadcast, there's a little red bubble down in the lower right-hand part of your screen. We open up the browser, tntradio.live. You'll see the links, which we put out on X. Also, you can follow TNT Radio on X Twitter as well at tntradio.live. The chat room is thriving, folks. We've had record numbers in there in the last week. The community just seems to be growing and growing. It's a great place to be and meet some great people. There's all sorts of views in there, and we welcome everybody, and it regulates itself uh, like any good information ecosystem. Thank you guys in our TNT chat community. This hour, we're going to be connecting with a very special guest. Very pleased uh, to welcome, when he arrives, uh, Miko Pell. He is a Israeli-American human rights activist. He's also an advocate for peace. He's been a great voice of common sense and compassion with regards to the conflict that's been raging uh, in the Middle East over the issue of Palestine and Israel since 1948. Uh, we'll be looking forward to connecting him. We'll bring him on stage uh, as soon as we've got him ready. Uh, and a big thank you, of course, in the last hour for that extended analysis on Ukraine from Freddie Ponton. Freddie's work in this area is really some of the leading work uh, in terms of analyzing uh, the NATO component, especially the French NATO component in terms of weapons and depleted uranium that's been trafficked into the Ukrainian war zone. I mean, that is a story onto itself. We all know about the damage from DU done uh, by its proliferation in the Iraq war, uh, but also it's reared its ugly head in Yugoslavia as well. Wherever you see NATO, the United States, Britain, and their allies, You'll find depleted uranium uh, in their tracks. Unfortunately, there's plenty of this that's poisoned uh, some of the most fertile agricultural land uh, in Ukraine. Sadly, that's just a reality. But listen, it's very profitable. And they believe that this is uh, the, the sort of munitions you need these days in order to penetrate, ta penetrate tank armor. Uh, that's the whole point of DU rounds is to make it through uh, reinforced steel and other sort of strong military uh, surface structures like tanks, aircraft, and so forth, bunker busting or, you know, uh, you know uh, a gunnery uh, encampment and so forth. DU can bust through uh, all of those walls. So it's sad, but uh, the, the half-life of that stuff is something like, I don't know, 400 million years. So it doesn't go away very easily. Very expensive to clean up. Can never be fully cleaned up, but at least it can be managed within an area. They're not going to spend that kind of money to clean it up in Ukraine, just like they haven't really put those sort of resources into cleaning up in Iraq. And who knows what the results of that have been over the years since the Iraq war. Freddie's uh, detailed that up at 21stCenturyWire.com, depleted uranium. French munitions in Ukraine. It was a groundbreaking report at the time when we did it here on the show. Uh, that was back in 2022. And uh, that's just one of many stories uh, that Freddie's brought to light. Now, over to the U.S. before we connect Miko. Uh, the New Hampshire primary was yesterday. Uh, Donald Trump looks like he took a record tally uh, in terms of Republican votes in the state. 
That is no small feat, folks. There's been a lot of elections in New New Hampshire, uh, and for a primary uh, candidate to take that number, I mean, I think the margin by the end, we're talking about 55, 56% of the GOP vote. That's a record. Uh, Nikki Haley is the last candidate to be officially in there. I think she might have clawed about 44%. But you have to understand something, folks. And what we do is we read between the lines on this. We've been doing very good election coverage for a number of years. And so we know what to look for. And what you look for in a state like that uh, are Democrat voters who are uh, in there uh, voting Republican uh, during the primaries. And that's going to skew the true totals. You won't see those sort of numbers numbers against Trump in a general, uh, because many of those Republicans um, will be the only ones voting in those general election contests. You won't see uh, Democrats uh, interloping into the Republican side as you do in open primary states and also independent voters or people coming in as independents for the primaries and then going back to their party uh, for the general. That's called tactical voting, tactical voting. Thank God we don't have ranked choice voting in more states. That's one of the biggest scams going. But uh, anyway, pretty impressive performance by Trump, regardless of the fact there are not many challengers left in the field. That, to me, is shocking in itself that there's not more uh, challengers in there. If you consider how many people are available to run against Trump, and you have, where we're told anyway, a large percentage of the Republican rank and file that are anti-Trump, certainly they could arrange a couple of high-quality candidates that might maybe go the distance past Super Tuesday at least maybe halfway through the primary cycle, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And what we do have is the prospect of uh, an unprecedented romp where you have one candidate winning all 50 states and taking a record tally in the primary phase. So this is exactly what I think a lot of people who are opponents of Donald Trump uh, did not want to see. Uh, this is why the lawfare, the legal cases, the lawsuits, the indictments, everything were just piled up over the last three or four months. And they did not want to see this happen. They did not want him on the ballot in all 50 states. Um, Democrats have sabotaged their own primaries. They rewrote their own rule book. And why did they do that? They did that to make sure there were no Democrat challengers during the primary that would challenge the incumbent Joe Biden. That's a big break from tradition. Some people say that's really twisting and meddling with American democracy. You have to remember, ladies and gentlemen, this hasn't happened before. Why would the Democrats change the rules for primaries, even though it's an incumbent? But uh, what happened was many months ago, Robert uh, F. Uh, Kennedy uh, Jr., RFK Jr., uh, was making noises uh, in the polls. He was taking 18, 20% of the Democrat vote, saying he's going to challenge Joe Biden in the primaries. That caused a huge stir in the land of the DNC. And I think some threats were made. Maybe some agreement was brokered uh, that he might back off and run independent. Nonetheless, they made their move, the Democrats, to basically turn the Democrat primary into a write-in campaign. So all the votes in New Hampshire were write-in votes for Joe Biden because he wasn't on the ballot. Someone figure that one out for us. You know, how, how is that even possible? in 2024 why would they even do such a thing or were they that scared of a primary challenger gaining steam i you know so i don't support rfk jr on the israel issue i think his position is absolutely indefensible and horrible but on, on most other issues probably quite palatable and it goes down well for a lot of centrists a lot of democrats and even some republicans centrist republicans so 
plus libertarians and independents. So that's amazing the Democrats would do that. They would transform the mechanisms of elections, tradition in America, long-held tradition, rewrite the rules in order to keep somebody from running against the incumbent, who is uh, one of the most unpopular in incumbents, if not the most unpopular Democrat or Republican incumbent maybe in history going by the approval ratings, going by the polls. That is historic. Uh, and I think you need to pay attention. And what this shows is po politics in America has become so polarized that uh, both sides, and I would say this is as we spoke to Mark Crispin Miller, an election fraud expert, wrote two books on the subject from New York University uh, in the, in, on Monday, uh, both parties have been involved in major rigging over the years. Uh, so it doesn't matter who's in power. What matters is what's going on. If any long held traditions are being broken, if any untoward uh, interference or meddling is happening, you want to call it out. And it really doesn't matter what party you're in, because if you give a green light to any party to abuse the rules of the system or to rewrite the rules for their own interests, then you're basically giving the green light for anybody in the future to do it, whether they're Democrat, Republican, or otherwise. That's just a basic principle of common sense. And that's why we are concerned about these sort of changes uh, in the structure. So this is something to keep an eye on going forward. Look, we're going to take a break right now. And on the other side, we're going to connect our very special guest, uh, Israeli-American activist, peace advocate, Miko Paled's going to join us on the other side, so you don't want to go away. We'll be back in a few minutes. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Stay right there. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rounds. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold or COVID? Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test. Oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk. TNT. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40. California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine. Government That's stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2% you know, 99.8% survival, rather than the three or 4% mortality that the, the people are saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested. 
and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. And you have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them, this is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. TNTradio.live. Online. Online. Online streaming. Be a part of the conversation. I stream it all at work, and I stream it to my phone and listen to it wherever I go. TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're in hour number two of this live broadcast. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thank you for rejoining us here. I want to welcome onto the stage a very special guest. Very pleased uh, to be joined by Miko Pellet. He is an American-Israeli activist. He's been an advocate for peace, a leading voice uh, in my mind and many others of common sense uh, about what's happening and unfolding in the region right now. We've got him on the line. Miko, uh, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be with you. And uh, I didn't mention, of course, that you're also the author of uh, a couple of excellent uh, pieces of literature, uh, including The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Miko, your uh, life's history is very interesting and uh, has shaped your worldview and your view of uh, your former country uh, where you were born. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with you, just give us a brief introduction about yourself, Miko, and how you came uh, to where you're at right now. Sure. Well, thank you again for having me on the show. I uh, was born and raised in Jerusalem to a very patriotic Israeli family. My father, as the title of my book suggests, was a general in the Israeli army. Um, and he was a general at a period where the generals were like, were godlike. Uh, he was a general in the 60s, and so he was one of the commanders and the architects of the 1967 war. Um, he was a young officer when the state of Israel was established and remained as a career officer to build the Israeli army. So from 1948 to 1967, that was the majority of his career. And that was when all the work was done to establish the state of Israel and establish um, the army. So, you know, that generation are really like God figures in, in, in you know, in Israeli thinking, in, in Israeli mentality. And there were other members of my family who held important positions before the State of Israel was established in, in promoting the idea of the State of Israel uh, and establishing what they call a Jewish state in Palestine. Um, and then others who, you know, also held important positions. So I grew up with this in this environment where the state was really important and everything you can do to contribute to your state and to your country was that was the conversation I heard all over. Um, and that, you know, and, and I, I, it wasn't until many, 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 I should say not years, but decades later that I realized that, um, 
I was actually living in Palestine and in a in a um, can, what can only be described as as a, as a sphere where privileged occupiers reside and completely ignore, not to mention exploit the uh, indigenous population who are the Palestinians. So that's kind of the short the short version. So, uh, Nico, I mean, you've been so active and outspoken on this issue for a very long time. And, you know, looking at your career, everything that you've done, all the public speaking engagements, all the media engagements, everything you've done. And then, you know, at some point you realize a lot of people were exasperated um, at the fact that there was no progress being made uh, on this issue in recent years. And then October 7th happens and all of a sudden uh, for for positive and negative, uh, the horror uh, and the silver lining, perhaps, that the issue was elevated to the world stage in a, in, a, in a way that I never thought I would see again. I really was losing hope over this issue. Um, and then you're now thrust uh, back as a, you know, a, a sort of really important voice, I think. Um, tell us about your feelings uh, when this happened on October 7th. Is it something that you expected to happen eventually, or were you surprised? And then tell me how this is different from previous uh, situations like Protective Edge, Cast Lead, uh, attack, major attacks, incursions on Gaza in the past. Go ahead, Miko. Well, I wasn't surprised. I think this was predictable and preventable. I've been saying for a long time that, you know, as these other assaults on Gaza were taking place in the past, you know, over decades, I mean, there was a very clear trend of things getting worse. And there was no reason for it to stop. Worse for the Palestinians. I mean, some people would say that there is progress and it's positive, you know. So, I mean, it all depends on where you stand on this issue. But in terms of this, uh, it was preventable, it was predictable. Um, in the weeks leading up to this, I had a sense that things were something was coming up, things were far too quiet. Um, and uh, and again, you know, the, and, and again, looking forward, unless something major happens and we demand and enter the, the killing and the suffering of Palestinians and the oppression of Palestinians, then it's going to get even worse. So I have, you know, the videos of things I've been saying over the, over the years are being regurgitated on social media and repeated and shared. And over and over again, I've been saying, you know, we're going to look at these days, the pre-October 7th days, the good old days. And guess what? Here we are, whether you're Palestinian in the West Bank, whether you're Palestinian in Jerusalem, whether you're Palestinian, uh, excuse me, citizens of Israel, things look, they are much worse than they've ever been before, and they were not very good before. So, no, I wasn't surprised at all, and um, I, I was surprised, and I'm still surprised, uh, impressed, I should say, maybe is a better word, at the capabilities that the Palestinian fighters from Gaza were able to show, because these guys came out of the what is clearly one of the poorest and most oppressed areas in the world, and they um, pretty much were able to completely dis um, you know, dis <laughs> disable, paralyze the state of Israel. And the state of Israel is still in a, in a state of chaos and paralysis, economically, militarily, in terms of people's daily lives. I mean, everything has been disrupted. And the fighting goes on, even with this butchery that we see in Gaza and the bodies piling up, bodies of civilians piling up by the tens of thousands, the Palestinian fighters are still at it. They're still fighting and they're fighting hard and, and they're and they're um, making a dent in the Israeli, in the Israeli forces. So in the Israeli force ability to fight. And so um, that I think is 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 something that is um, that is surprising and impressive. 
But in terms of the, uh, the fact that things are getting worse and this massive assault is taking place, I think it was pre predictable and I will say again, preventable. And also you have a firsthand experience as well uh, with the uh, Israeli, the, Le the Lebanon war as well uh, in the 80s. So what, what was society like uh, within Israel in that kind of wartime situation? How is it different today? Uh, because, you know, we see the current prime minister has always made this his big selling point of his leadership is I will protect you. I'm the only one who can deliver security for the state of Israel. Uh, you know, get behind me and my new coalition. We're going to protect you that seems to all be thrown into question right now and some israelis are we're told i don't know if this is true maybe you could give us a little more insight of this or voting with their feet on that issue and many have left uh settlements especially in the north and maybe even left the country uh, tell us the situation inside israel right now how it's different from the past well, Netanyahu failed on every possible front. There's no question. And you're right. His slogan was, you know, you can trust me. I can keep you safe. Well, on October the 7th, the Israelis were not safe. I mean, the very mil the military base of the Gaza Brigade, which is the central brigade that was supposed to protect the Israeli settlements in the, in the southern part of the country from precisely this sort of attack, was taken by the Palestinian fighters the very base of that headquarters of that brigade was taken by these you know scrappy fighters they're not an army you know they're you know they're not an army um they don't have the, the logistics the capabilities the resources the support uh systems the, you know these guys are coming out of gaza strip for, you know for crying out loud and they took over uh that massive military base not to mention 22 israeli settlements in that part of the country not to mention like i said disabling and and really creating a state of dysfunction in, in the entire state of Israel. So Netanyahu and his government have failed on every level by any standard. There's no question about that. Um, whether or not this is going to impact him politically is a whole other question because he he manages, he knows how to maneuver and manage the political, um, the political world within Israel and always maintain, you know, and always remain on top. Um, Israelis are in a state of confusion. Israelis are, on the one hand, there's a sense of we are all in this together. We're patriots. If you look at, you know, social media, Israelis uh, that I know and so on. I mean, everybody, we are one. We're fighting together. We're going to win this, blah, blah, blah. You see this in the Israeli press. I mean, the headlines, just above the headlines of the news, you know, there's always these slogans. We are together. We will win. We will fight and on and on. But the reality is far from that. The reality is that there's a state of chaos. The different political factions within the political world and the Israeli political world are eating each other up. They're biting it. They're at each other's heels. They're, you know, attacking each other. They're, you know, um, information from classified meetings of the government and the military are being leaked. And so everybody knows who hates who and who said what to whom and who attacked. You know, so there's no there's no real unity at all. But there's the but they've got the the slogans out there so it's a state of chaos and and really again going back to the accomplishments of these uh these fighters who came out of the gaza strip and again i'll say one of the most oppressed poorest place on earth i mean people that are lucky if they have one meal a day and if they can find clean water water that's fit for human consumption it's rare on regular basis never mind when the bombing is going on and so they were able to you know, paralyze the state of Israel, put it in a state of total confusion for months now. The military is not winning. 
um the uh the entrance to the red sea is being blocked by yemeni forces israel has been dragged to the international criminal uh the court of justice uh, you know israel things are going downhill very very fast and they're pretending that they've got everything under control um and people and people are confused uh, people are really confused they don't know who to believe they don't know um and they see that their lives and their security are are now in jeopardy like never before and so put put yourself into the into the shoes remember when you were a young man serving in the IDF um what it what what's going through their minds you know you have people what 19 20 21 22 being sent into the Gaza strip uh in in a ground war um in the last th over the last three months i mean th th there's never been an extended campaign like this into uh the occupied uh territories into the palestinian areas um what what is this like is there a level of um are there is there a potential of dissent among the ranks uh is there a level of uh conditioning or indoctrination that's required to get people um to sort of you know buy into these types of operations because the rest of the world's looking at this in horror miko thinking this is a genocide you've got the case in the icj yet you still have to deploy uh your reservist your military to tell us what might be going on in in their minds and within the groups and so forth well, I mean, so we just just the other day, some twenty-one or twenty-two soldiers were were killed in one in one explosion in one go. So they're being killed uh, very rapidly. Very high-ranking officers are being killed. Reservists are being killed. Um, people are doing their, you know, younger people are being killed. So they're not winning. The destruction is horrifying. Of course, you need a an, an enormous amount of indoctrination to be willing to do that. And you know, I went through the same indoctrination, but somehow you mentioned the Lebanon war at the time. So the, the invasion into Lebanon of 1982, I was in my last year of service. I was not a com I wasn't a combat soldier at all then, but I was you know serving in a base near Tel Aviv. I was perfectly safe, and um, but there was a sense there were protesters and there were people who were refusing to go into Lebanon. Even my father, who was a retired general by then, called on soldiers to refuse to serve in Lebanon because he said it was a, it was a war crime to, taking place there. And there were massive protests against the government for lying about Lebanon, for the massacre of Sabra al-Shatila, the two refugee camps in, in southern Lebanon, in southern Beirut, and so on. So, I mean, there was a sense that dissent was acceptable, even though you still paid a price for dissent, but there was dissent. One of the first things that happened after October 7th was the Israeli chief of police stood up and said that he has ordered his officers not to tolerate any dissent whatsoever no protests no no dissent uh, in in any way shape or form and you don't see dissent you see small groups of israelis trying to protest here and there uh against the slaughter you see the families of the of the hostages that were taken protesting demanding that the government negotiate to free the hostages they're being beat up on the street they're being you know told that they're traitors so there's no dissent permitted whatsoever and I think the difference is that there was still in, in those days, in the 80s, there was still a sense of, of uh, that the, Israel was safe enough where it could allow for dissent. Um, and this is an internal feeling. And today, they the situation is so severe that they're afraid even of the small. I mean, Palestinians are afraid to text each other. I'm talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel. They're afraid to go to work. They're afraid to go on the streets. You know, it's 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 a life of it was always a life of terror, but now it's 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 you know it's magnified. So the situation is uh, is different somehow in that regard. 
Um, but the sense of, uh, I can't imagine what soldiers in the Gaza Strip now must be feeling. Cause I mean, they've destroyed everything. Um, they're the, 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 the number of civilians, I mean, every, all of Gaza are civilians, except for a small group, groups of guerrilla fighters. They're all civilians. So, I mean, you know, uh, I don't know how they live themselves with themselves. I don't know how, but how they, how they get up in the morning, how they, you know, um, and, but what's interesting is I've been looking at the social media pages of the different IDF units, every commando, every brigade, every regiment has their own Instagram page and they've got all these photos and, and they're showing these images of the soldiers almost heroically standing in Gaza, you know, destruction all around them, but the soldiers like in, in, in high definition, you know, kneeling about to take a shot or, you know, and then, you know, the caption is, of course, you know, keeping us safe, killing terrorists and that sort of thing. So they're working very hard to maintain the image of the of the heroism, which, of course, never existed in the IDF. So, yeah, that, it's 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 got to be crazy. And, you know, you're in America, Miko, so you, you're, you know, well placed to observe the, the the way America frames the American media, the body politic, the way they frame this issue. And it's it's like Israel versus Hamas. It's not Israel versus the Palestinian people, or it's as, as if nothing happened uh, for the last 75 years, that everything began on October 7th, that sort of framing of it, this kind of narrow band. Um, and then as Hamas is, is prescribed as a terrorist group in the U.S. and in in Britain and the EU and so forth, uh, it's almost like you know anything goes. It just justifies anything that this is a state of emergency. It's Israel's 9/11, and this brings us to that tough conversation that a lot of people struggle with. Miko, uh, looking at history of armed liberation struggles, be they in South Africa or wherever, um, who were declared as terrorists at one point in history, but later in history are not. But it's it's a very difficult to have an objective conversation because of this overarching cloud of you know Hamas as terrorist and the atrocities of October seventh. Can you speak to this uh, dynamic? Uh, how you're seeing this? Well, of course. I mean, the PR machine is working very hard, and the slogans are are very effective. So it was interesting because I was here. I'm here in the U.S. and I'm giving lectures on campuses and you know all over the place. And then I was in Australia for a week and in. In, in December, and, and the same questions are being asked, and the same slogans are being thrown out, and the news and the news is saying, and the news interviews are asking. I was saying, I'm saying, how does it so fast? I mean, two days ago I was on a campus here in the U.S., and today I'm in Melbourne, and you're asking me the same questions. And you've got the exact same playbook that fast. It's, it's so it's impressive how fast it is. It's like they've all been given the playbook. They sat up all night and studied it, and that's it. They know exactly what to say, what to ask, and how to frame it. And that's exactly the framing. It's always Israel war against Hamas, Israel war against Hamas. From time to time, they'll say Gaza instead of Hamas. But of course, like you said, it's complete nonsense. Israel waged the war. And this is how I, my response, every single interview, my first response, Israel waged the war against the Palestinian people in 75 years ago. They've been massacring Palestinians for 75 years, actually 76 years, because it started before Israel was established as officially as a state. And this is granted, this is even by, by the horrors that Israel commits, this is a new high, but it's not different than everything else that's been happening up to this point. Yeah, the, the, except, of course, the count of civilians being allowed to be massacred. 
But I mean, yeah, this is this is part of a larger a larger war against the Palestinian people. This is a, 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 a you know, granted a heightened level of of the genocide. I mean, I don't know that they've ever murdered that many people in such a short amount of time. Uh, but it's been genocide, and you, you know, there's two things that are interesting about genocide. That you know, it's not just a killing of a, a systemic killing of a people, although that, of course, is a big part of that. But it's also the destruction of their country, the destruction of their identity, denying their identity, taking away their land. So over the last 75 years, Palestine was taken and the name changed. For some reason, the world accepted it. It's not, it's not, nobody calls it Palestine anymore. People call it Israel. At best, they call it Israel and the territories or something like that. They changed the names of cities. Towns and villages that were destroyed are now have Israeli settlements with different names. The cities that were taken, major cities that were taken, they were Palestinian cities, the names of the streets were changed. Um, and so where Palestinians, in some of these cities, you still have Palestinians living, suddenly instead of the Palestinian Arab names that are historical names and, and are related to the history of the country, you've got all these Zionist names of all these war criminals and generals and presidents and so on. So this is all part, and then, then denying Palestinians identity. I mean, how many times have Israeli leaders said there are no Palestinian people, you know, going back 75 years? So this is all part of the genocide. And what we're seeing now, of course, the, and, the, and the very open discussion, very open discussion in the Israeli, um, you know, by Israeli, you know, people who hold very high office, members of the, important members of the Israeli government, talking about the displacement of two million people into other countries. Like it's, like it's, you know, like it's taken for granted. And the people interviewing them, we're not challenging them about the morality. They're not challenging challenging them about how the absurdity of of this. They're just letting them talk, and then they ask some questions so that you know about the details and so on. So it's madness. I mean, it's 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 been genocide. Like I said, this particular chapter of the genocide was predictable and could have been prevented. So all these tens of thousands of dead civilians could have didn't have to die, um, but nobody wants to recognize it. Took this. For the first petition, genocide petition, to be um, to be presented against Israel, it took this. They could, it could, this could have been done a year ago, ten years ago. There are plenty of there's plenty of proof that it's genocide. Um, so that's the that the that you know that that's the reality in in which Palestinians exist. And and unless something drastic happens to stop it, it's not going to stop. So so look at look, the the big picture on this you know uh, Miko would would you believe or would you agree that 10 years ago 20 years ago that there was a point where the international community or the United States whoever would you know uh, uh put pressure on Israel to apply the brakes or pressure within Israeli society to apply the brakes that it wouldn't go this far and and as you commented Miko that there's people that are in complete denial or you know, not wanting to acknowledge that this is uh, a, an ongoing genocide right in front of their eyes. I mean, is this is this a case of some? There's some change in societal attitudes um, in in Israel in the West that this is allowed to commence in the way that it has. Because I just I'm shocked that there's not more politicians who I don't know maybe want to be judged better in history as doing the moral thing. And they're quiet about it. Everyone seems to be browbeaten. Well, how do you explain the the change, or what, how how do you how do you square this? Well, I, I don't think there's there's change that is that dramatic yet. Uh, I mean, certainly taking Israel to the ICJ to the court, you know, is is a big step. Um, 
And I understand there's going to be another petition coming up, also coming up, also presented by the South Africans, which accuses Israel of a longer genocide, the genocide of 75 years, which I think is much more appropriate. But I think, to be honest, while let me put it this way: if you walk into congressional offices in Washington D.C., you see tables, chairs, staffers, and Israeli lobbyists. I mean, they're part of the furniture. They're always there. You know, member of Congress, members of the press, elected officials, going up. You know, from school board members through city council members to state legislatures all the way up to the president they get emails and letters and notifications by the hundreds every day from every zionist group that exists out there local national and so on there's no one presenting the other side if you wanted if you were an american politician you wanted to make an informed create an informed opinion and then make an informed decision you can't you don't have the information nobody has presented the palestinian case in a comprehensive way, in, in you know, there's no institution that has ever done that or that is doing it right now. We're actually working on an initiative here in DC to start that right now. But there's nothing ever been done that it's even remotely comparable to what the Zionists have been doing for 75 years, or more, I should say 100 years, more than 100 years actually, because they began long before Israel was established. There is no parallel. There's no information coming from the other side, unless there's like a catastrophe, like what we're seeing right now. But there's never context. So if you were to discuss what is a free Palestine or the possibility of a free Palestine, uh, all of historic Palestine from the river to the sea, free and, 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 and liberated and democratic with equal rights. People don't have a frame of reference because they don't know there was used to be a Palestine. They don't know that there was a Palestine. They don't know who Palestine is. They don't know. Who, they've never seen a Palestinian. They've never seen a beautiful picture of a Palestinian. They've never read a book by a Palestinian or a poem by a Palestinian. They don't know that this exists. And of course, they don't know the story. They've never been told the full, compelling story of the of the Palestinian story, the Palestinian people. With in the absence of that, we're not, there's not change can't happen because the the most basic thing you need before the pressure, before the lobbying, before the the you know the money and supporting and the politics is basic information, is education. People need to know, and they don't have that. Whereas from you know primary school, you're getting fed in school, in t on TV, in church, in the synagogue, you're being fed all of this Zionist uh, propaganda your entire life. So I think that is the that is the maybe the, the biggest problem that we're facing uh, right now. And you spend a lot of time on college campuses, Miko. I know you you speak at a lot of college you know, student unions. You do a lot of presentations. You you interact with a lot of different types of um, higher education students uh, around the country. And what do you make of in the, in the last three months? And suddenly, uh, this this chant from the river to the sea is being used to clamp down on student protest. It's been characterized as a genocidal chant. We had the theater of Congress on this uh, university, top university presidents resigning over this. I mean, it, it seems to me extraordinary because just explain the genesis of that, that, that chant, what it actually means. And what, what do you think about how it's been weaponized against, um, students and Palestinian supporters. Go ahead. I think we need to see the larger context here. So the Zionists have think tanks, and this is what they do. They think up ideas. So a few years ago, somebody said, well, we need to change the definition of anti-Semitism because just if anti-Semitism is only racism directed at Jews, that doesn't involve Israel. And so, and since there are many Jewish people who are who reject Israel, 
and now the claim that Israel is a racist endeavor is catching on. We need to stop that. So let's create this new definition, and that's what happened. They created a new definition. It's called the working definition of anti-Semitism. And in the examples within the working definition, there are examples of saying, for example, that Israel does not have the right to exist, and Israel is a, is a, is a racist endeavor, and so on. And then they went from county to county, from every governmental organization, university colleges, churches, all the non-governmental organizations, you name it, councils, I mean, you name it, and demanded and received recognition of this new uh, adoption of this new uh, definition. Nobody knows exactly what it means. Nobody, what it means when you adopted it, but now people are scared to criticize Israel because they're going to be called anti-Semitic. So somebody in that room was sitting again and saying, well, let's see if we can, what else can we take that is being said, being used against us, that we can now throw at them. And then somebody came up with this idea that from the river to the sea is hate speech. And I was sitting at, I was giving, I gave a talk about a month ago at a library in uh, near Albany, New York, in Bethlehem. And as I'm speaking, so, you know, the Zionists came, which they don't often do to my events, but they came. And there was a ruckus and all this. And suddenly a library administrator is coming to me and he goes, no, 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 you can't say that. I said, I can't say what? Mm -hmm. I said, you can't say river to the sea. I said, it's a geographical, you know, description of the country. It's between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, and it's very commonly used. He said, no, you can't use that or else we'll have to stop the event. You know, it's a level of madness that is, you know, what is the river to the sea between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea? And it became a slogan from the river to the sea, you know, is Palestine. That's what Palestine, or if you want to call it Israel, some people call it Israel. That's where it exists. Now, if you say it between the river and the sea, Palestine, they will be free. They say, aha, you mean free of Jews, don't you? Well, nobody ever said that. Nobody ever thought that. Free, you know, you, they're, they're really brilliant because they can take a word like freedom, justice, human rights, equality, and turn it into hate speech and claim that it's hate speech. And, and the amazing thing is that people buy into this nonsense and accept it. So a free Palestine from the river to the sea, free of apartheid, free of genocide, free of violence, free of checkpoints. It'll be free for everyone with human rights. This will be good for Israelis too. This is the recipe for peace. There is no other recipe that can lead to a peace between Israelis and Palestinians other than a free Palestine from the river to the sea with equal rights. There is no other way to bring about peace. That is the recipe. But of course, that's what they're afraid of. So now they said, okay, from the river to the sea is the new anti-Semitism. You know, and then I'm sure in a week or two or a month or two, there's going to be a new slogan that they don't like, and everybody's going to be, you know, and then you, people are going to be attacked for using that slogan. You know, they're very, very good at it, and they've got people, you know, getting six digits, sitting in rooms, getting paid six digits to come up with this nonsense. And we don't. So, so that, that that brings up the, the question of the future of uh, Palestine, the future of Israel. This uh, a long-running debate, uh, a two-state solution, one-state solution, no-state solution. Um, where do you see the future um, going forward? First question I want to ask is how do you see uh, a, a, a ceasefire taking place? Uh, just the immediate relief, getting aid and what needs to happen in your opinion, Miko? And then what about the future of the region? Go ahead. Well, what I think needs to happen is I think the sixth, the U.S. Navy Sixth Fleet, which operates in the Mediterranean, needs to immediately provide uh, humanitarian aid to the people in Gaza and enforce a no-fly zone over Gaza. That's the first thing that has to happen. So when I say this, of course, people think I have, I'm out of my mind. But 
That's the first thing that needs to happen. It's our Navy. We're paying for it. It needs to do, it needs to serve our interests as human beings, as, as, as American citizens, not the interests of a lunatic government that is operating in Israel. And so that's the first thing that I think needs to happen. There's not going to be a ceasefire um, unless somebody forces Israel to stop killing Palestinians. Now, what does ceasefire mean anyway? Israel has, has signed thousands of God knows how many ceasefire agreements, and they've always violated them. A day later, two days later, they always violate ceasefire agreements. They always have. Ceasefire agreement means nothing. You know, that's why I say, if we're going to do something, it's got to be huge. It's got to be impactful. It's got to be dramatic. It's got to be big. The Sixth Fleet shows up on the coast of Gaza, and that's it. Nobody fires a gun anymore. Immediate aid to the people of Gaza. Billions of dollars to go into Gaza and rebuild and rehabilitate. And then no-fly zone. And then moving on quickly to dismantle the apartheid regime, the apartheid state. That has to happen immediately, unconditionally, so that we guarantee the safety and security of Palestinians once and for all and forever through a permanent agreement, not a ceasefire agreement, a permanent political solution. That's got to happen. Once a two-state is not a conversation, it's not a serious debate. It's not a debate. It's nonsense. Two-state, anybody who still talks about two states, either you're completely ignorant or is lying and doesn't want to really face the truth. Because the truth of the matter is that all of Palestine is a single state. It's the state of Israel, all of it. There's not a single, you know, square inch of Palestine that is not part of the state of Israel. It's an apartheid state, so you have... Israelis like myself who live with privilege and Palestinians who live, you know, with no rights. And again, it goes beyond that because Palestinians live under different bureaucracies, different sets of laws regarding where they're located geographically. It's really complicated, very complex web of bureaucracies. But the reality is they live without rights. That's the reality. It's a single state. You have Israeli settlements across the street from Palestinian towns and villages and cities. That's the reality. There is no way to slice and, and, and divide the country. It's a single state, done deal. And there's never going to be a scenario, and we have a 75-year history that shows it, where an Israeli, the Israeli state, the Zionist state, will ever allow the Palestinians to be recognized as, as, as a nation, as a country, and so on. And we see where this leads us. In other words, we see the apartheid, we see the genocide, we see the ethnic cleansing. These are major crimes against humanity that have been going on for 75 years. So anybody who wants to support Israel, this is it. This is it. There's no other pie-in-the-sky, peace-loving uh, Israel. This is it. There is another option, though. There is the option of dismantling apartheid, of imposing severe sanctions until this apartheid regime collapses, bringing Israeli society and the state to its knees, like was done before in South Africa, for example, and then and then allowing a democracy, free Palestine, a democratic state with equal rights on all of historic Palestine to emerge, you know, just like they did in South Africa. Except I would say the challenges in South Africa were far greater because it's a much bigger country, and they had ended up with some 30 or 40 million African, black Africans who never who were impoverished and never had a chance to go to school. Palestinian society and Israeli society are highly educated. They can go to work tomorrow and 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 create a very a, you know functioning democracy the next day. They don't need to learn. You know, you don't need those basic tools of building schools and that sort of thing. It's already there. Highly, very highly educated communities. So uh, that's the if if anybody wants to talk about peace, first thing you have to do is you have to have you have to dismantle apartheid. You have to end the killing of Palestinians. You have to provide safety for, for the Palestinian people. 
and you have to create an environment of tolerance of equality. You have to create that equality equality for the first time. It's never been it's, that's never happened. It's never been in existence. And once you have a democratic state with equal rights over all of Palestine, free from apartheid and genocide and checkpoints and, and racist laws and so on, we can talk about peace because the next natural thing to do, the next natural process is, or the next natural step is peace between Israelis and Palestinians so that they can function, so that this new state can function. And I think it's a byproduct, it's inevitable. Once you do that, peace is inevitable because now these two nations are living in a democracy where they share the responsibilities and they share the benefits. Well, that's a path that's been a brave, a brave path, a difficult path, but it's been taken by other countries before that transition has happened. So um, I'm I'm certainly hopeful, uh, Miko. I think uh, everybody needs to be hopeful. Otherwise, there's no point in uh, going forward in the future. But um, I I am very encouraged by what you just said. I think um, I think hopefully it resonates with more more people as well, uh, especially no matter how bad this crisis we're in right now is. I'm mindful of the time, so we know that you've got to go. We really appreciate you staying with us for this long. Miko Pelled, activist, author, and uh, a great voice uh, in, in these troubled times. We really appreciate you joining us on TNT, today's news talk this week. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Miko Pellet. You want to follow him on X Twitter as well. We've tagged him on our feed, so just go to his account. Keep an eye on what he's doing and also what's going on on this issue in general. And uh, I'm just very uh, encouraged by what I've heard there. That two-state, one-state uh, debate is so contentious, but this seems to occupy a lot of the conversation uh, in Washington, D.C. right now. Unfortunately, a lot of people regard it as a red herring. I totally agree uh, with what Miko said there uh, about what is the real way forward. And you know that does beg the question, especially, and this is an issue I, I think is important to bring up, especially for a lot of Americans, why Americans, especially conservatives, uh, really uh, abide and stand by and really revere the Constitution of the United States, the Bill of Rights, and what a great foundational document it is. It provides the fundamental pillars uh, for conservatism as well. But we have a lot of people uh, within that party that are absolutely supporting Israel, supporting the apartheid state of Israel, and are still pushing this idea of a two-state solution. So it's really kind of, in many ways, I think it's a, a, a bankrupt argument that you can want to preserve something at home, to conserve a constitutional republic at home, and all the rights that go with that, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of movement, freedom to assemble, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You, you hold all those all those principles, all those rights dear uh, at home. But uh, when you're advocating for your foreign policy for other countries, you're saying, no, no, we don't want to advocate for that overseas with Israel and Palestine. We want a two-state solution or we're happy with the apartheid system. And that's that. It just doesn't make any sense. And this is one of the problems, this sort of hypocrisy that's become baked in. It's almost institutional uh, problem in in U.S. politics, uh, and as Miko said, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of money that's been injected uh, into the political system in the United States. I think that's distorted and warped 
the conversation. Certainly, it's distorted policies and views of our elected representatives, of our uh, agencies, of our media as well. And that needs to change because until that hypocrisy is flushed out and people can sort of treat this more objectively, in other words, do unto others as you uh, do unto yourself and how you'd want to be treated by everybody else, how you want to be treated in your country, equal rights for everybody under the law. Why would anybody not want that? Uh, but that seems to be a problem uh, when it comes to the Israel-Palestinian uh, solution in terms of how the West uh, are framing it. As we learned as well, uh, the last nail in the coffin of this conversation on the two-state solution, looking at all of those years uh, pursuing the Oslo peace process is right through the 1990s right into the 2000s. Um, this is regarded by many now as a total red herring, uh, that it was really only to buy time uh, for the Israeli government to build uh, uh, all these settlements for, I don't know, six or 700,000 uh, settlers and changing facts on the ground. So, you know, the, the peace negotiations really just going through the motions in public while the building of settlements uh, expanded more and more. And that brought, has really brought us to the point where there is no viable uh, Palestinian state or two-state solution, as Miko said, and as many others are starting to say more vocally now, even uh, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink, this is a leading anti-war group in the United States. She said on this program with us uh, just a few weeks ago that really the only viable solution is a one-state solution. So we're hearing this more and more, and even from people who may have advocated for something else in the past, they're now moving on and evolving on their positions on this. And I think this is the way forward. We need to evolve uh, and, and base our policies and decisions today uh, based on what's happening on the ground. The realities on the ground should form our policies. Otherwise, it's just pie in the sky. It's just fantasy. And the other thing that needs to stop, and this is how I'm going to wrap this conversation up, is I see a disturbing trend that needs to end. And one of those is that the leading powers in the world, countries like the United States, like Britain, are actively avoiding peace negotiations, actively avoiding de-escalation opportunities, be it in Ukraine and even uh, sabotaging. Uh, peace deals. This happened with Ukraine early on in March 2022. Boris Johnson, the British, uh, intervened probably on behalf of Washington, whatever, to kill uh, any potential peace agreement between uh, Ukraine and Moscow. And that's exactly what happened. And look at the hell that's unfolded over the last two years as a result. So look at the situation now in Gaza, same thing. There have been opportunities for ceasefires. You could have put pressure on Israel anytime. This is within the U.S. ability because, in fact, the United States is supplying all the bombs, all the artillery. They're providing the reconnaissance, targeting information, drone surveillance. They're providing material support. They're providing naval support off the coast of Israel. They're providing all this, and if the United States withdraws that support, even for a few weeks, the Israeli operation is finished. It's over. So the U.S. is actually a co-belligerent, and if it wants to decide to step back, which it's within its power to do, it could change the whole situation literally overnight, both in Israel, in Gaza, and also in Ukraine. And that's a fact. And that's their disturbing trend, is this avoiding diplomacy, avoiding peace negotiations, sabotaging uh, peace deals and pathways to peace. This is a problem we're seeing. A disturbing trend needs to end now. Politicians, activists, you guys, media, you got to get in 
and get on the ball on this issue before it's too late because we are careening towards World War III. That's not a hyperbolic statement these days. Sorry, that's just the way it is. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much to our special guest, Miko Pellet, uh, in the second hour. And a big thank you to Freddie Ponton and also Basil Valentine for weighing in as well in hour number one. Thank you, our listeners, for listening and viewing and watching TNT. Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. I'll see you guys tomorrow, same time, same place. We've got a lot of grounds to cover. It's going to be interesting. See you then.